It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast and welcome to our 10th season of podcasts. We've got a brilliant new theme for you to enjoy this season, which is called Histories and Mysteries of the Countryside. But before we get to that, I'd love to introduce you to my fellow podcasters, Hannah Tribe and Jack Bateman. Hello. Hello. So Jack and Hannah will be with me for the whole series and without them, the podcast would just be an idea on a post-it note at the bottom of my desk drawer. So lovely to see you and welcome. So histories and mysteries of the countryside. Well, it's really exciting. We've got a great start to the series with historian, archaeologist, anthropologist, Mary Ann Hotter, who you might know from Time Team, Animal Planet and various other history-themed TV programmes where she's illuminating our past and interpreting the wonders of our landscape. And that's what she's doing for us today. She's heading off on a quest, striding out across the ancient landscapes of Dorset. And we'll be back after Marianne's adventure to talk about what we've heard, what we've been listening to, and to share some of your stories. So without further ado, let's join Marianne out in the wilds of Dorset. You are joining me on an absolutely gorgeous midsummer afternoon. Um, the sky is this glorious children's picture book blue with little fluffy white clouds. The hedgerows either side of this track that I'm walking up are verdant and bursting with life. And I can just, over the sound of the A road um, that I'm walking away from, hear the first skylarks tweetering and fluttering very high up above in the in the ether my journey on foot is starting just outside the village of cashmore which is um just north of bournemouth right in the heart of the cranbourne chase area of outstanding natural beauty and i'll be heading about six miles through this rolling downland landscape, ultimately to reach, in my book, one of the most enigmatic archaeological sites in this part of the country. It's called Knowlton Circles, and it first became, well, obviously significant to people in this area about four and a half thousand years ago and continues to be so now. Hence our pilgrimage today. The first stretch of the walk is um, climbing up from the A road. And it's a, a gentle climb along a, a track. It's actually a lot warmer than I thought it was going to be. But it does mean that you can smell the, the elderflowers that are blooming and that slightly tangy brackish smell which may be the nettles I think um, which way does the footpath go let me just check my map hold on 
straight ahead. If you're going on a landscape spotting adventure like this one, you want to start exploring the history that's hidden in the landscape around you, well, it becomes revealed if you start to spot some of the clues and know what to look for. Uh, an Ordnance Survey 1 to 25,000 scale map, so OS Explorer series maps, are absolutely invaluable. You can go old school with a paper map. You can go new school with a app on your smartphone or a GPS device. If you're going particularly off the beaten path, don't just rely on those gadgets because they can get wet or run out of battery, turn themselves off. Paper map doesn't do that as long as you know how to use it. And uh, the beauty of the OX Explorer maps is that they show things like field boundaries, patches of different kinds of woodland, but also archaeological features. So things like in that curly Gothic font, tumulus or settlement or earthwork. And that is exactly what I am on the hunt for today. Notwithstanding the glorious scenery, beautiful summer wildflowers, I'm also searching for ancestors. Oh, I've just come round the corner of this thick hedgerow, hedgeline, and there's an old fence post. There was a buzzard sitting on top of it, having a little preen. I think it's slightly annoyed that I disturbed it. It's wheeled off into the sky, waiting for me to get out of the way. But the other reason I'm excited about being here is because I'm at the first marked feature on the Ordnance Survey map between here and Knowlton Circles, my ultimate destination. So there's a curving earthwork and it's marked on the Ordnance Survey map with a ditch and a bank. And it looks like, you know, it's, it's, it's a portion of a circuit, a circular enclosure perhaps. And we are very much at the top of a, a hill, a rise. This area is rich with evidence of prehistoric settlement and people living and dying, leaving their monuments, signs of, of how they lived. So it makes me think that this curving earthwork here, now a haven for wildlife because it's a bit too lumpy-bumpy for modern farming, uh, is the remains of what was once a, an encircling earthwork of perhaps a Bronze Age or Iron Age settlement up here. Now, whether this was used as a corral or defensive or, or boundary marking uh, earthwork, or whether it was to demarcate a part of the landscape that was perhaps used in a different way for some kind of ritual or spiritual significance. Just walking along the footpath, I wouldn't be sure. But that's the beauty of landscape spotting. You've kind of got a few options that you can explore and wonder about. Now, the rest of the field on the other side of the hedge line to my right is, is ploughed and planted. It's got a crop of what look like peas growing. It's likely that if this strip of, of land has been used for agricultural purposes for many hundreds of years, which looks likely, given the thickness and well-established nature of the hedgerows along the, the field margins, 
then chances are the rest of this encircling earthwork was ploughed out long ago. I'm just coming down this slight rise away from the circuit of the earthwork and I'm looking left and right at what is clearly a very, very ancient trackway. It's, it's a hollowway. It's hollowed down into the earth. Uh, it's quite narrow now. You could get a, a well-behaved horse up it, but not a cart, for example. And if you had a herd of cows, then they'd be going in, in single file, probably. But it's easily six foot below the surface of the, the, the chalk hillside. And that is simply created, these holloways, and you find them all over the country. Holloways are created because of the passage of hooves and feet and, back in the day, cartwheels. And so these lines in the landscape show us where our ancestors walked. Some of them are medieval, some of them are prehistoric, and in an area like this, particularly going alongside this, this curving bank and ditch earthwork that I've just walked through effectively on the footpath I would be very surprised if this weren't a prehistoric uh, of prehistoric origin people would follow desire lines you know the, the kind of the simple the easy the obvious way through the landscape um, marking boundaries yes but also just getting from A to B that's how these connections in the landscape are created because of people wanting to go places, do things, see people, trade, network, meet a boyfriend or girlfriend, bury their dead, honour the ancestors, worship the gods. All the regular stuff, you know, that we travel for now. It's lovely to think that I'm walking <laughs> literally in the footsteps of people who walked through this area of the country four and a half thousand years ago. And then again, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. And because of our network of footpaths and bridleways and permissive paths, this is a track that is still available for me to continue to keep that, that living heritage alive. So now that I've hit this ancient trackway, I'm actually going to turn right, turn southeast and walk up onto the high ground towards the remains of a settlement on Gussage Down. Already, just scaling the slight rise in the, the land, I've got this beautiful vista right in front of me. Even though we had such a slow start to summer this year, the hedgerows have made up for lost time. It's a trackway that, between the two hedge lines, it's probably two, two and a half metres across... But actually, in between the tall grass, the cowslips, the... Oh, beautiful butterfly, hello. Poppies, I can see some forget-me-not. Oh, cowslips, buttercups, beautiful. Between all this verdant abundance, there's a very narrow single-track path. You kind of don't really know what you're going to discover around each, each corner, do you? Still got those gorgeous skylarks singing at me. And right in front of me, in the next cultivated field on the other side of that hedge line, is another archaeological gem. I've come to the top of this rise 
on on Gussage Down. And to my west, as I'm walking south, so to my right-hand side, in the middle of a field of a sea of, of green wheat where the, the ears of wheat are, are just kind of waving gently in this in this summertime breeze, is what I can see is a long lump of earth and it looks very very different it's all grassed and and green with cow parsley and and rough grasses it stands out very very clearly because it's not cultivated it doesn't have any wheat growing on it it's got the kind of wildflowers and rough grasses I can see some nettles and that indicates to me that this is some kind of site that has is protected in some way that it hasn't been cultivated or or, um dug out to flatten it so that you know uh, there's another few square meters of, of viable um, land surface for, for cultivation and so if you see one of these these kind of lumps or bumps sticking out of what is otherwise a cultivated field you know you're looking at something at something you know capital s something and the chances are it's probably archaeological and that's why it's protected that's why it can't be plowed and as I was walking up the hill from where I was looking, I thought, oh, that's a round barrow. So a Bronze Age, so from about 2400 to about 800 BC, a round circular earthen mound called it a round barrow. And on the Ordnance Survey maps, it's marked as tumulus or plural, tumuli. But actually getting up closer and then checking my map again, it's not a round barrow, it's a long barrow. And the clue is in the name. This isn't, uh, you know, this isn't rocket science. It's not a circular earthen mound. It's a long sort of oval lozenge-shaped earthen mound. And a long barrow is even earlier than a round barrow. It's a different style of burial monument that dates from the Neolithic, so the late Stone Age. So from about 4,500-ish BC to about 2400 BC. This was a time when people were farmers. They had crops to cultivate, things like barley, wheat, emma, spelt, um, possibly oats. They had animals, cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, or, or fowl at least, perhaps not chickens. And they had stone tool technology, so they were napping flints and other stones into sharp and usable blades uh, into arrowheads spear points they also used stone for you know all sorts of other things like large heavy lumpy hammers or wedges for splitting wood things like that even though we call it the stone age most of their tools would have been organic materials so things like uh, wood bone antler stone age is a bit of a, a misnomer it's a bit of a red herring sometimes because it makes you think of the flintstones and that everything is made of uh, made of stone but realistically it would have been all the different resources that would have been available to them so hide leather bone antler teeth wood all sorts of things Um, textiles, organic textiles, things like nettles, bramble fibres. They would have also woven cloth from linens and flax, and that's where they buried their dead. 
It doesn't look much now, but if you imagine when it was first constructed, it would have probably gleamed bright white because it wouldn't have had the grass over it. It would have shown the, the chalk, earth and rubble that is the natural bedrock of this, this area. The, the soil of this area is bright white. And it looks like it's highest at the, uh, the southern end and it slopes down, peters down. Long burrows have all sorts of different histories. Um, some of them have stone chambers inside them. Some of them would have had a, a kind of an original wooden um, structure or some kind of platform inside and then it was, had, it was covered over by earth and stone and rubble being heaped up on top of it. You don't get very much big stone round here because it's chalky. So it's more likely that this doesn't have some kind of enormous stone compartments inside it. It doesn't have any obvious entranceway either. Um, but it's very clearly a monument that would have required hundreds of hours of labour from the people who, who constructed it originally. And that demonstrates kind of just how important and special it would have been. It would have been used as a communal burial chamber, so people would have been laid out perhaps on this wooden platform or put into inside the wooden hut, sometimes whole bodies, sometimes disarticulated remains, so not a whole skeleton, but parts of bodies or, or bones from people whose bodies have been um, defleshed or, the, or the, the flesh has already rotted away, and then you collect up the bones and you put them into the, to the bone house. And then that is transformed into a permanent monument in the landscape. Sometimes these long barrows were used for just one generation. Sometimes they were used multiple times over multiple generations, so for hundreds of years. You might not know their specific names. They might have all transformed into a kind of a collective of, of land spirits or ancestors who look out for you, look out for your community, um, are the ones who provide... The, the fertile soil or the, the healthy animals or the sun rising and setting each day. And I think that's what these monuments are. They're about cyclical time and they're also about people's connection to the land. By building your enormous burial monument, your earthen mound up here on the high point of Gussage Down, you're kind of making a statement that this is in part your land, that you have a connection to it that is literally of and in the earth. Oh, there's another mound in this next field here. Again, really obvious at this time of year because it's sticking up from a field of cultivated crops and this one's covered in very tall cow parsley. There's another one just parallel to it, perpendicular to me, that is rough grass. So that's two more. Now these are circular, so I'm thinking that these are Bronze Age round barrows, so probably more likely to be individual burials from perhaps 2000 BC onwards and so these people would have been buried perhaps these are significant individuals to a community it looks like um, social structure perhaps political structure has changed by the Bronze Age not only do they have metalworking technology and recent um, research in archaeology has suggested that this has been brought by people who have different DNA to the people who were here before. So perhaps new immigrants from other European communities get into little boats, come across from Spain, Portugal, or the, the Western 
shores of France and, and settle in, in the British Isles and Ireland. And they bring with them a different way of doing things. They've got new metalworking technology. They've got slightly different um, cultivation and settlement techniques. They also have a different way of burying people. So that perhaps suggests a different kind of religion. And uh, it appears to be more focused on individual burials, individual monuments, rather than communal monuments. So you don't get communal graves as such. You get these individual round barrows. But what seems clear to me is, given how close these two monuments are, even though they're probably, say they're they're constructed around 2000 BC, the thing in the other field, the long barrow, that's constructed around, say, 2500 or maybe 3000 BC even, so it's 2,000 years old, at least 1,000 years old, before these other monuments are constructed. It's already ancient. It's already been there since time immemorial almost. No one can remember a time before it was there. And so if you want to align yourself with the timeless ancestors or the curators, the keepers, the guardians of this landscape, what better way to do it than to bury your most revered, most respected or powerful leaders or significant members of your community right next to the ancient tombs of the ancestors, your ancestors. What a privilege for me to be able to be walking through this extraordinary landscape 4,000-odd years later. Pay my respects too, because... I'm not from Dorset. Not officially my ancestors. My mum's Indian and my dad's Polish. I grew up near Manchester. But in terms of inheriting a legacy of caring for the land, I think I can make a small claim to a continuation from the forebears to now. So I've covered a couple more kilometres over the downs and I'm heading now gently downslope into the village of Monkton up Wimborne. Isn't that a lovely name? And uh, to my left are watercress beds, which I can see over the hedge. A little scattered hamlet of red-roofed brick buildings. And the reason that this village is significant to our ultimate journey to Knowlton Circles is because dotted amongst these little houses and the barns and the different farm farmsteads are springs, hence the uh, watercress beds being here. Um, and the springs ultimately lead to feed a tributary, the source of the River Allen. And the River Allen isn't a profoundly famous river, ultimately feeds out into the into the water off the south coast. But the reason it's significant for us is because Knowlton appears to be intentionally situated on high ground above a point where two of these tributaries of the River Allen converge, the confluence of them. So I've reached the point in my walk now where I'm ultimately going to track along the rough route of this tributary of the River Allen 
to the point of its confluence with another tributary, which is marked, I think perhaps not accidentally, by an enormous prehistoric monument complex. So this is where the River Allen begins, in this tranquil spot in the low ground just below the chalk downland. So for the past hour or so, I've been tracking the River Allen, albeit about a field away, parallel, so I haven't been able to see it. And now, just as I'm approaching Knowlton Circles, I can't quite see them yet. Uh, the lane winds around and the hedges are too thick. But there's another bridge that goes over the lovely river and it's, it's crystal clear because it's a chalk stream, so there's hardly any sediment. And it's just beautiful, so tranquil. And then little spots of circling ripples where the little bugs and the flies are landing on the, the river surface. And because we're near farm buildings, there are swallows, there are swifts, different birds entirely, different trees as well. The ones that like getting their feet in the wet. I'm going to get a bit poetic. It smells like time moves slower over that river. Now I'm walking away, again gently uphill, not getting out of the valley but just up to the, the top of the valley, all very gentle. Don't think, uh, you know, rift valley escarpment or anything, think um, rolling downland of southern England. And these low-lying meadows, I suspect, flood seasonally and then just beyond this thick hawthorn hedgerow in front of me, dotted with ash trees, mostly looking in good health. It looks like the, the land that's permanently cultivated begins again. And just at the top of this lane, about another three or four hundred yards, I'm going to reach my destination, the purpose of this pilgrimage. Hello. Oh, and over the hedge... I can spot the top of a church tower. That is where I'm headed. That is where our journey culminates. So I've just walked in off the lane through a little trackway with English heritage signage and right in front of me is the remains of a medieval church. It's known as Knowlton Church. Um, from documentary evidence and from some of the archaeological excavations, we know that the first church was constructed here in the 12th century, so the 1100s. And what we can see today dates mostly from the 14th century, so the 1300s. Um, it's ruined the tower doesn't have a, a roof and neither the, does the, the body of the church, the nave. But that in itself doesn't particularly mark Knowlton Outer Special. What marks Knowlton Outer Special is that this little village church, made of chalk blocks and sandstone is in the centre of a Neolithic henge. So a circular 
earthwork with a bank on the outside, a pretty deep ditch on the inside with little causewayed walkways to access the central space. It's exactly the same form of monument as you see surrounding the stones at Stonehenge. And yet here, the earthwork was constructed perhaps 2500 BC, possibly even a little bit earlier. And it has survived so beautifully well and been regarded as significant by generation after generation after generation of people living here. So much so that they decided to build their church, a Christian church, right in the centre of an ancient monument. In many other places, the move towards Christianity came with a desire to destroy the, the pagan, the idolatrous, the, the evidence of, of pre-Christianity and pre-Christian beliefs. But here at Knowlton, either someone did a lot of mental gymnastics to mean to, to, to make this earthwork legitimate, appropriate, and say, oh, well, of course, you know, that's where we should build our church. Or they decided that the church was part of a longer story. Perhaps this was an open-air space for worship long before the, the church itself was constructed. But again, for someone to say, ah, yes, this is where we'll gather to worship the new God, exactly the same places where people have gathered around here for generations to worship the old gods. And that in itself is extraordinary. It's a testament to the persistence of why this place is special. And I think it continues to be so. I'm just walking now into the, to the nave of the church. It's, it's narrow. I mean, it's not more than, what, one, two, four or so metres across. It's got a, a little chancel at the top. And if you walk into the tower, you look up and they're rough stone walls made of flint blocks, chalk rubble. I don't think this was ever supremely high status. They must have brought the sandstone in from, from nearby. And you can see all manner of generations of graffiti etched into the, into the soft stone. Fred and Fan. I don't know what that one says. And you look up to the top of the tower and you can see some brambles and some Herb Robert growing out of the crevices. And then above me, just this beautiful square of blue sky. And you can actually see within the wall the little divots, the footings of where the the upper floors would have been and perhaps supports for a staircase, perhaps to go up to the top of the tower. And the window space, the... The, the, the stone window frame, as it were, is still present, but obviously very heavily weathered. And you can tell that that's perhaps where they would have had stained glass, maybe. It's a beautiful space. It does feel special. And it's funny, actually, looking out the the glassless windows up above to what would have been the bell tower, looking out of what would have been the, 
the southern door of the church, the main entrance in. Each one frames a view of the, the countryside of this area of Cranbourne Chase, of, of the downs of Dorset. And it feels very special, very calm. It's not just, you know, a pile of bricks and rubble from 600 years ago. There's definitely a sense of place. It's really funny, actually, because the centre of the circle is, is, is higher. As you come into the, into the earthwork, the bank is high. The ditch is very deep. Probably the bank is three metres up and the bank is another two, three metres down in some areas. And then the centre of the circle is, is kind of a little bit lumpy-bumpy, but it's grassed and it's, it's kind of midway between the bank and the ditch. And it gives you a sense of seclusion, but also enables views to the, to the horizon. So you can see the rise and fall of the land all around you. And somehow it feels like this is a place where there's a connection to both the seclusion of the circle, but also a connection to the landscape beyond. So that's where we leave Maryam for now, on the edge of Knowlton Circles. But the quest doesn't end there. Join her next week when she delves deeper into the secrets of this ancient site. Meets the owners of a local farm who've had some strange encounters within the circle and other strange things. So do tune in for that. Well, I absolutely loved that. It's a landscape I'm quite familiar with, those downs of Dorset. But Marianne really brought it to life and she peopled it in our minds. I, I just, I'd love to walk with Marianne and hear her stories. But a podcast was just as good. What did you guys think? I think it was wonderful. She's got such a good, like a brilliant way with... Uh, descriptive words so you get a real sense of how she's feeling and how it looks and how it smells and how it feels for her to be there not just she's not just telling us what is there it's like we're there with her I'm always fascinated by burial mounds I find them quite eerie and quite the idea that there's these they've been built to house the dead and they're always in these stark landscapes where they're kind of on tops of hills or there's a big view around big skies quite lonely places and when you're out walking come across these barrows it was really interesting to hear her talk about how they would be used by the whole family and even even though they interred people in the barrows they were still it was like they were still part of they were making their families part of the landscape that they could look at and have that memory I, I thought that was just fascinating I suppose when you turn up and they're they're in these lonely places, it gives them a certain atmosphere that they needn't have. It's just because we don't live around them anymore that they feel isolated. I think I want to have that feeling, that atmosphere in my life. But of course, those landscapes were full of people, well, you know, relatively compared to now. Now they're sort of farmed or nature reserves or sort of rather lost hills in... Um, where we, you know, the villages are scattered. There's not that many people working in the fields. So it wouldn't have been lonely in those days, perhaps. I think it was really interesting to have her paint a picture of how they actually looked 
then, and rather than thinking about them now as these kind of hummocks in the landscape, how they would have been shiny and bright and white and really clear and something you could see from a really long way away. And then I was also thinking about how this sort of shininess is reminiscent of the pyramids. And those buildings were used for a similar purpose. How significant people who had died were culturally. We sort of, people die in our culture at the moment and they're sort of left, whereas then they were kept with the community. On the mantelpiece almost, in the sort of (laughs) (laughs) um, statements in the landscape. Yeah, I... That, that that point you make about the chalk, the white gleaming chalk, I had never considered that because all the burial mounds that I've ever seen, hundreds of them you know, on, on walks, are, are always turfed over and quite you know, full of wildflowers and butterflies, so very tempting for someone who loves that sort of thing to um, to scramble on. But it made me think of, there's a castle near me in Wales here called White Castle, but when you visit it, it's not at all white, it's just sort of grey stone. But once upon a time, it was painted white, whitewashed so that to make a statement to to stand out in the landscape I guess that sort of thing just goes on and on. That's a similar thing to um or it's similar but not the same to the marbles you get in Roman marbles Greek marbles so you think of like Roman statues as these like pristine white men women and horses and they weren't like that at all they were garishly painted but we have this idea of them being like this because that's how we see them now but they weren't like that at all absolutely it's funny that we tend to see things again what marianne is so good at expressing is we tend to see things through the prism of how they are now and how we feel now and i liked but she also made those connections that they they had quite the same motivations quite a lot of the same motivations that we have and we shouldn't lose that. And it's quite easy for some historians, I think, to say, oh, we can never get into the minds of these ancient people. <laughs> but actually, it's it's possible to do that by really looking at the traces they leave behind. And that whole thing about Stone Age, which was quite interesting. They, they didn't just bash rocks together. <laughs> no. Yeah, they must have had all these sophisticated tools that we've just lost because they were made of organic stuff. So what we've got left behind are these slightly lumpy rocks. And you think, well, they're quite crude, they're quite rough, and therefore what they were doing must have been quite crude and rough. But there's no reason why that should be true. Yeah, it was probably the wood age or the leather age, but none of that stuff survives. So we call it the stone age. And then people get this idea of primitive, hairy, ape-like, creatures bashing rocks together um and and that's not true talking of tools talking of tools yeah it's can i talk a bit about maps the floor is yours <laughs> it was so nice to hear marianne talking about how she was using a map paper map a lovely paper map with all of the things drawn out and that gothic font showing her where to go there's something so wonderful about maps I think maps, to to me, they seem to be the way, easy way of unlocking the history of wherever you are. You can kind of go back and view older maps and see what's changed, see where sort of districts are suddenly split into two, or I don't know, you can probably see the effects of some sort of coastal erosion and stuff with the cliff edge starting to move in towards a footpath or so. And I think they're so key to be able to remember our history and see how much the landscape's changed and 
how we're affecting it over time. I think even more now, you could probably find a map from only a couple of years ago and there's going to be a big handful of changes that have appeared only over the last couple of years. Yeah, sadly, probably another road or a little housing yeah. estate or, or something. That's, uh, but um, I, I mean, I, I I get this strong feeling from you, Hannah, that you like to have a tac- the tactile, the tactility yeah. of a map in your hands and the rustle of it in the wind. Whereas I, I and just it's the 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 sort of permanence. It's the I've definitely got this, and if it rains or if if my battery goes flat or if I don't have any signal, I've got this solid thing that will say you are here. So a map and a compass don't really need anything else except for good shoes. Um, and you know where you are. Good shoes. It's yeah. Forever. Um, I, I tend to use a digital map these days on my phone from the OS. Ordnance Survey, who we at Country File Magazine have a, a, a great partnership with the OS and they, they their mapping's just beautiful to look at but on the on the on the app you see a little arrow that says where you are and my goodness (laughs) that has saved me so many times from making horrific errors and I have occasionally in the past walked two or three miles out of my way merrily following the sounds of beautiful birds pixies and whatever fairies and whatever else that I've encountered and then had to do a shortcut back through hideous dark dense woods and it's all gone horribly wrong so i'm grateful to have this technology when i was a leader on the duke of Edinburgh award i taught some kids how to do bearings and i'm still not even sure how to do bearings myself but they all survived (laughs) they never found (laughs) brilliant well as i say marianne completes her quest at knowlton circles in next week's episode So join her again for that. And we'll be back too, obviously. And before we go, it's time for our sound of the week. Yay. Fergus, do you want to let everyone know in case they aren't aware what sound of the week week is? Yeah, well, absolutely. Sounds of the week. We've been running for quite a long time this year, 2021. And it's where we ask you, the listeners, to send in your sounds of the countryside. And it's anything that you come across, really. It might be a delicious sounding song thrush from the top of an oak tree or it could be the gurgle of a beautiful mountain stream. We've enjoyed the sounds of aircraft on a summer's day, or a tractor rumbling along a country lane. Please send them in, because we we just, they're delightful to hear, and it gives us a taste of what the countryside's like where you are. It doesn't have to be the UK either, so we welcome our international listeners, wherever you are, send us something, and we'll play it in the podcast. Please send them to me, Fergus Collins, at my email address is editor at countryfile.com. And if it's a big file, use one of those file compression websites like WeTransfer or something like that. But Jack, I think you've got this I episode. do indeed. I've got a uh, sound of the week from John Hemmings. And he wrote in to say he was listening to our Soundscape number 20. And it was the Soundscape with Nightjars in. And uh, sound escapes, for those who don't know, um, come out every Friday. It's just five to ten minutes or so of just nature, as nature is, the sound of nature. He writes, he was lucky enough to record a night jar, including its wing claps, in Northumberland this June. And he sent the recording in and hopes we enjoy it. So uh, I guess we'll just take a listen.
that is just sensational bit of recording. And well done, John. I did record that wing clapping for a previous podcast. If you look back through probably around episode 50 or something, but um, that's a really good recording. I'm quite envious. And they do make that strange clapping sound as they sort of, it's almost like they're switching off their engines. Um, So thank you, John. And as I say, please, listeners, do send in your own sound recordings. They don't have to be as exotic as Nightjar's scufflings of a hedgehog would be just as delightful and that's about it from hannah jack and myself this week but join us again next week when we return with more histories and mysteries of the countryside thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>